Hello and welcome to the Dylan Tons Podcast. What is it about Bob Dylan? I'm Jim Salvucci and I'm here in our inaugural podcast to interview my good friend, Ern Callahan. Ern's taught in the English department at San Jacinto College in Houston since 2007, and she completed her PhD in modern history and literature at Drew University, and she wrote on Bob Dylan's identity construction. She's published on gender in the Star Wars saga, on Star Trek, The Next Generation, and Charles Schultz Peanuts. She has presented at various conferences, including Bob Dylan in the 21st Century in Arras, France, where I first met her. Mm-hmm. Welcome, Arm. How are you? I'm well, thank you. How are you? I'm doing okay. Welcome to our inaugural podcast, and thank you for being our inaugural guest. I'm just grateful that you asked me to be the first guest. It's quite an honor. Thank you. Who else would I ask? So tell me, what is it about Bob Dylan? You know, it's interesting because I've been thinking about this. It's language. Um, so there's an, a roundabout way that I've thought to answer this question. Uh, so when I was little, my parents had, we always had music in the house. My parents had this catalog of LPs and I used to read the lyrics when I was little. And so the first lyric that I remember being focused on was Stairway to Heaven. If there's a bustle in your hedgerow, don't be alarmed now because the words at my seven-year-old brain didn't you know, they, there was a sight rhyme, which I didn't understand then, but of course now I do. And I thought that was fascinating. And we always read, we come from a family of readers, there are books and all music everywhere. And we read a lot of poetry. When I was 12, my stepdad gave me a book of Dylan's lyrics and in his very hippie way, he said, take this brother, may it serve you well. Um, and I just fell in love with the language. And I remember the the lyrics, the two lyrics that stuck with me at that age were to dance beneath the diamond sky with one wave handing free. So just silhouetted by the sea. And I thought, what a beautiful image in the empty space that, or the, the extra space or the off camera out of frame space that Dylan gives us. I wondered what the other hand was doing, you know, and it's always that, that moment of like, you know, when I hear Mississippi, like everyone else, I'm like, what happened in that 24 hours, you know, that he stayed there one day too long. Uh, but, you know, so and then also every one of those them words rang drew, true and glowed like burning coals pouring off of every page like it was written in my soul. So, and it's just it's so fantastic. And it's such a beautiful I mean, there's so many different ones. But in my 12 year old brain, those were the two that really jumped out at me. And then other way to, to look at this when I first really started consciously listening to Dylan, because he was always on in the background in my childhood. Um, there's a Bill Moyers interview with August Wilson. And he asked August Wilson about blues music. And Wilson talks about blues music being part of the people and like folk music is. And when we're, when people sing the song over and over again, it's sanctioned by the community. And when he first heard Bessie Smith, it shot through him that he said, this was for me. It was singing, speaking to me. There was something in the voice and something in the lyrics that I knew that this was, this is yours. And that's how I felt about Dylan. It was like, all the other things that I had listened to in my life, and I come from an eclectic music background, but that was the thing, you know, more than the Beatles or any Carol King, even any of the things that my parents listened to. That when I started listening to it on my own, it was like this is this this is yours. It speaks to the, your values in a way, and I maybe couldn't have articulated that at you know my adolescence, but you know, as an old lady now, I can. So that's that's what it is about Bob Dylan, the language, but also that it it just said it just shot through me, you know, like like a 
like a lightning, like lightning, I guess, in a way that nothing else had. That's beautiful. Thank you. Great answer. So you're 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 working on this book, right? You're you're co-editing a book with Core Carney. As you know, as you know. As I know. Yeah. Um, and uh, so tell me a little bit about this book and, and maybe, it, it, well, just tell me about this book. Tell me what you think. So the book is um, in 2019. So first in October, it's October 14th, 2018, I took my parents to see Dylan. And I had taken a little time off because I had become so immersed in Dylan writing the dissertation that I needed a break. Um, and I don't know how I can take a break now, but I did at the moment need a break. And as we were at the con concert, I just started writing. I thought, this set list is really dark. And I was like, it's really almost nihilistic. And so I put that away a little bit. And that was October 2018. And then we had the conference. I was working on the other conference paper for the one in, in France. And then we had the Dylan World of Dylan conference where I met Court. And then we decided to present at another conference in November of 2019. And it was that conference where I picked up that idea to look at what was going on with Dylan's set list. And Ray Padgett has a website that's dedicated to kind of looking at set lists in, in a journalistic way. It's quite good, but I don't know that we'd done, that I'd seen anything academically before. And so after our presentation, Court and I were at a, re at a reception. We presented on a panel with Nicolette War, who was also in, in Tulsa with us in 2019. And he said, you know, I think you've got something. I said, really? <laughs> and it was, you know, his kind of genius to, to say, I don't think I've seen anything academically done in this way on looking at set lists as narrative construction or, you know, how they're so deliberate. And he said, let's do a book. And then, of course, I said, OK. <laughs> and um, so then COVID happened. And Somewhere in the middle of COVID, he said, let's pick up this idea again and let's get started with it because he wasn't really doing it. We were at home all the time and it seems like a really good use of our time. So um, that's kind of the backstory of it. Now, I'm incredibly grateful for, you know, as I'm in the editing process now and reading, doing a deep dive in all the chapters, the brilliance and the depth um, and the diversity of the contributors and the contributions that we have, yours included. Um, I'm just, I'm blown away that we have almost every decade covered. I think we're a little late on the nineties, but, um, <laughs> understandably maybe, uh, but we, there's some great concerts from the nineties. There are, there are. I was at the, the Madison Square Garden concert in 1998, uh, with okay. Joni Mitchell. It was fifth row. And I mean, I don't know how I got that lucky, but wow. I did. Yeah. Um, and just, it, it, it's just coming together that, you know, Everyone has an, a distinct idea um, based in some deep theory about what's going on with these uh, with these set lists, and I I couldn't be more grateful to see how how it's really come to fruition. And you're in it, Anina Goss, Grayley Heron, Robert Genio, Sean Latham is going to contribute a chapter, Laura Tenshirt, Sarah Martinez. I mean, we just have really fantastic people contributing to it. So. I'm, I couldn't be more excited. Yeah, I think honest. it's a it's a real credit to you in court that you you got together such um yeah luminaries. I'm I'm very happy to be in that mix. Thanks, um, I appreciate it. Yeah, I think that's very cool. So why why are why are set and I, and and by the way, the irony of you you know working on a set list book 
at a time when you couldn't see Bob Dylan, you know, mm-hmm. not lost on me. Um, but why, why, why are set lists worth exploring? You know, there's a whole lore around the set list, aren't there? Isn't there? Like we have this, you know, I don't know. I, I can tell you the story from the that Joni Mitchell concert. Uh, my friend and I went and there were two guys sitting next to me. And I remember Ruben, the guy who was sitting directly next to me, because Ruben and his friend were smoking a joint. And I don't know if we can mention this on your podcast, but um, sure. his friend took a hit and the cop came over and arrested the friend. Oh, and and I just sat there, you know, my eyes wide, and I looked at my friend, and we just kind of we were observing everything that was going on. And Ruben said, "It was nice to meet you. I'll, you know, enjoy the show." And at this, this was the point where, of course, we didn't have the internet, and the set lists were still changing every night, you know, because yeah. Dylan kind of picked up that Grateful Dead, uh, I guess, mantra or or practice of changing the set list every night, and it was a big deal to post the set list and know the set list of what was played the night before. And I turned to my friend and I said, I have one call from prison. If I am ever stupid enough, or jail, if I'm ever stupid, stupid enough to get arrested at a Dylan concert, I have that one call. You, or you don't be dumb enough to leave and you better know the set list. I think that was my response. And so it is part of sort of this, I don't know, lore mythology around Dylan. But I think that, you know, in all seriousness, he's a performer more than a studio artist. And as deliberately as he selects the songs and we know what he leaves out based on the bootleg series um what he puts on the albums i think he's equally deliberate in what he puts into a show and what he thinks needs to be in the show and what rounds out a show and i i mean everything he does is deliberate Mm -hmm. but if we think of it in those terms then we can look at it and as sort of you know a, a time stamp of a particular moment or a particular show and i know that when he comes to houston or when he used to come to Houston, more often than not, he would play Blind Willie McTell. And people would always respond when he'd say, I travel through East Texas. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he didn't play it in Austin. He would play two, in 2003, he played two shows in Houston. And he played Blind Willie McTell in both of them. But then when he played in Austin, he didn't play it. Mm-hmm. And so he's very deliberate, I think, you know, in terms of where he is. And we know just from seeing him in D.C. that in the last tour, he was kind of picking up this wikipedia banter almost (laughs) about the place where he was you know talking about foggy bottom in dc right and so i'm not sure if the the banter is really fits with what i'm trying to say is but studying his live performance and how he arranges the set list i think is important in how he creates maybe narratives or even through repetition as he does now how he's reinforcing those narratives and even changing the lyrics from 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 city to city. So it definitely gives us a whole different way of looking at Dylan, which is akin to what you said right after France that you said to me, you were tired of people looking at Dylan as a figure and you have to look at Dylan as, you know, through characters. And that's how we came up with our panel for World of Dylan was we stopped looking at Dylan himself, but looked at him in a new way. And I think that needs more development as well. So there are ways that we haven't really fleshed out, you know, in terms of looking at Dylan and Setless is just one of them. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think you're, I think you're right. There's some, there's a lot to be mined in all these things. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. look, I mean, this is a guy who who's gotten in trouble for his setless, right? Right. You know, the famous newspaper column, Maureen Dowd, trashing him for not mm-hmm. performing the song she thinks he should have performed. To right. Stick off the Chinese, but, but ignoring what he actually played, which was when right. you actually look at the setless. 
it was and, Bobby tweaked the Chinese pretty badly. And everybody has opinions. And I, I said to one of my friends, oh, my friend Jason that you met, I said, Jason, if he played everything we wanted him to play, he would play for days. Right. You know, he would just be playing a, a nonstop show. Yeah. You know, and, and we could just, I mean, and also he's not going to take requests. He and does, he was, though. He? <laughs> not in a long time, but yeah. No, no. So, I, yeah, I just, that's what I think. I think it just gives us a new way of looking at him. And yeah. because he does so many live performances, it gives us an opportunity to see the nuances of change, you know, night to night, city to city, and then song to song. So you, you in some of your work, you talk a lot about um, generational approaches. I, you right? know, I was like, a lot? Do I talk about it a lot? Or well, is you it talk just about a lot to me. Yeah. And, and, and you, right. you gave a paper at the um, Pop Culture Association, American mm. Culture. Did I give a paper? That, yes, I was there. <laughs> I was on that same panel. You and I collaborated okay. a lot. And, yes. Uh, and it and you you know you were talking about generational approaches, right. and it, and it's interesting. So I just listened to um, Laura Tenchard's latest, definitely Dylan, and she was mm -hmm. interviewing um, Rebecca. Um, I can't remember her name, her last name, but um, she's a who's a Gen Z right thinker. Um, Laura is, I, I believe, uh, millennial. Right. right you and identify xer i'm a gen xer. xer i'm a gen yeah. xer right i'm an right. early i'm a i'm a i'm a, I'm a cusp gen xer sort of um, i'm a late gen xer and uh and uh you know so all these things matter and everybody always talks about the baby boomers right right, right. um now you know so you know how does that sort of break down i mean what what does that look like across the generations i think that you know the way that i looked at it was a very specific way of using monster theory to look at how the boomers kind of created this monster that is Bob Dylan. Mm -hmm. And it's based on Cohen's seven theses about, you know, monster and monster theory. But it was really born out of our frustration that, you know, I think a lot of Gen Xers feel that we're often ignored, but it wasn't so much that. It was just frustration that we feel that there is um there's a club and we're not in it, to kind of paraphrase. George Carlin, uh, and that the baby boomers have this sense of ownership of Dylan. And not, on, not only do they feel that sense of ownership, but they're not very generous in letting other people in the club. Mm. Um, and we, we felt that quite a bit at the World of Dylan conference. Um, yeah. and, and so that was really, you know, I think that, that was the, those were the discussions going on among the Gen Xers in the group, I think. But then that same PCA panel, we do, you know, I feel like our group is now very, very close knit, and maybe we should branch out. <laughs> but Court's thesis was, you know, he, he was a little bit more generous having the time to and the distance of not having an emotional reaction to feeling left out, but really kind of considering the different generational approaches. So I'm going to reference him. And I cannot imagine living in a world where you have Bob Dylan, freewheeling, the times are changing. And then you get all of a sudden as something brand new, another side of Bob Dylan. Mm. And then you have, you know, you have, um, that, yeah, you have another side. You have uh, Bring It All Back Home, Highway, Highway 61, and then Blonde on Blonde. And you're like, you're blown away. And the and how fast that production is in the, in the mid-60s. And for boomers, I can just imagine, you know, in as a Gen Xer, Maybe that was my just a tenth of my reaction to hearing Nirvana smell like Teen Spirit of like 
this is insane and it's for us and it speaks to who we are, like how we feel at this moment. Um, and it is like that, but probably just, you know, just incrementally better. And so there, I can understand the, the feeling of you weren't there when it was new. Mm. Um, but I don't understand in academia, like as in fandom, I can understand that, but in academia, I don't understand the divide of, you know, of why it's so territorial. So what I've come to is what my paper was kind of focused on was they did kind of create Dylan as this monster. If we look at Cohen's thesis, theses, the first is the monster's body is a cultural body. And so we can definitely look at the body of work and Dylan, Dylan the figure representing that as a cultural body because it speaks to American culture. And it's also born at a moment of crisis. And if we look at the 60s and all of the turmoil that's going on and that these kids are coming of age and he is in proximity to a lot of their ages that they feel an identification that he's really speaking for them, which is how he becomes the voice of the generation. But beyond that, it's, is it Rebecca Slayman? Slayman, right. Thanks. Yes. Okay. So Rebecca, what Rebecca says too, and I have her reference here, is that he's kind of, um, he, he's a rebel. And he speaks to, you know, so I think it depends, like if you're coming to him as a boomer, you're looking, you know, or as a boomer, you're looking at him with, through a particular lens. But every generation after that, I think it depends on when you come to him. So if you came to him like I did through language, I think it's a, you know, that's how I came to him first. So I'm always focused on Dylan's lyrics before the music. And that's just because of how I came to him. But I came to him as a 12 year old kid and then 15, 16, listening to the music and so in my adolescence, and I was not quite rebellious. I was just a probably disaffected kid full of ennui. And, you know, <laughs> I was a Gen Xer, you know, you, you know, the drill. Um, but he, you know, so I think it depends on when you came to him, because my cousin, who was also a Gen Xer, had never listened to Dylan and asked me at 49, mm. you know, what he should listen to. And I'm like, all right, well, he's been through divorce. Uh, listen to Blood on the Tracks. <laughs> you know? And I do think it's probably the most accessible Dylan. But, you know, I, I thought for who he was in his, you know, in his life that, you know, there, you're going to, you're going to respond to him differently based on the time you come to him. I think that yeah. that's an important point. But I think the most predominant image of Dylan is that mid-60s Dylan when he is kind of you know espousing values of liberty justice you know um, freedom American values and if you are looking at your world and you think that you know or your society and think it doesn't quite align with those values then I think he's going to speak to you and he's going especially if you're an adolescent he's going to speak to your rebellion so that's kind of how I break down the generations that the boomers they do own him in the same way Xers own Nirvana. I'll take it. But, um, you know, I do think it depends on when you come to him, you know, what you're listening to. If you're kind of focused on that early Dylan, then of course, if you're focused on gospel Christian Dylan, then you're going to get something, you're going to respond differently. So I think it's, you know, it's not as easy to just segment it into generations. It's kind yeah. of what I've come up with. So, I mean, one of the things that, that strikes me is that the boomers, there's 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 really two stages of the boomers even, too. Mm -hmm. They're the ones who were old enough to appreciate Dylan when he first came out and experienced right. that. Then there's others who are still boomers who came into him much later, mm -hmm. right? They really didn't tap into him until late 60s, early 70s. Yeah. Um, so there's really two generations there. So not all of them have even you know, experienced 
Dylan from the get-go. And there are some kind of early boomers who just are more doo-wop and early rock and roll than Dylan. And they don't, they, they, it just kind of, they're, they, it, Dylan just passed them by. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So There's it's always interesting. That. There's always yeah. that. The Elvis yeah. set. Exactly. What, what can we learn from all this? I mean, what do we, what do we take away from all this? I mean, you're, you're talking about this. Court's talking about this. Rebecca Slayman's talking about this. Laura Tenchard's been talking about this. What do we think about, it, about this generational reception, we'll call it? Well, just you listing that makes me think none of the boomers are talking about it. Yeah, that, that <laughs> runs the gamut of everybody but the boomers there, doesn't it? Yeah. So maybe my initial point of us feeling frustration <laughs> of being left out of the club is, is you know, the underlying current. Maybe It's a new club. Know. It is a new club. And it's, it's much bigger than the boomers, by the way. Okay. Yeah, we'll, we'll beat them in numbers. Now, I think that, you know, he does, if we go back to that monster theory, one of the other things is the monster never dies, that the monster will disappear mysteriously, you know, and resurface if we can look at, you know, his, in his retirement, which wasn't really a retirement in Woodstock. And then, you know, the times where you count him out and then he comes back he constantly resurfaces and he has something, you know, that I think is a little bit is, is not even a little bit, but relevant to the time or the period or, you know, the people who are listening to it. And so I think that that's part of it is he initially captured the zeitgeist of his period clearly, but I think that accessibility tracks throughout his career is that, you know, that people, find him incredibly relatable and that he's mm -hmm. communicating something about what it means to be human, which art does. And I think that's what, I think that's how I break that down that, you know, if we're all talking about it and maybe, you know, my parents are going to relate to rough and rowdy ways in a way that I'm not relating to it, but I still, I still do relate to it. In Mystery Train, Marcus says that, and I think this is another thing that, that people like about Dylan or hate about Dylan. I can name one person that hates it. <laughs> My friend Babu, who was at a concert with me recently. Um, but Marcus says in Mystery Train that an artist has two choices. An artist can affirm the audience or can continue to create. And Dylan has refused consistently to affirm the audience, to give yeah. them what they want. And he has maintained, if everything else is a construct in his identity, he's maintained the authenticity of, you know, continuing to create on his own terms. And I think that that is something that allows us to relate to him regardless of generation. So I think that's what we learned from it is that first, everyone's talking about it, but the boomers. <laughs> so there's something there. And second, that Dylan just remains relevant because he's so fiercely independent and, you know, and he continues to create on his own terms. And, you know, if the monster also tells us what is possible, then maybe that's something that we kind of relate to as well is that we think wouldn't it be nice to live life on our own terms and, and not have to conform in the way that he has I'll, yeah. I'll I agree with that oh I I would love to do that okay I think I think you kind of do yeah yeah I do. <laughs> I'm very Dylan-esque of you so you're a Dylan scholar yes you're a Dylan fan I am reconcile that for me are the two mutually exclusive, though? I don't know. Some people seem know. to think they are. I think, I mean, anytime you 
you study something, where you think about it, read about it, analyze, write, and talk about it as much as we do about the, at Bob Dylan or about Bob Dylan, we there has to be some sense of fandom. You have to enjoy it. You know, there's a reason why I chose modernists over Victorians in my PhD coursework and studies um, because I prefer them and I prefer reading them. And so I think that you have to be a little bit of a fan of something to dedicate as much time as we do. So in that way, I think that, you know, they aren't mutually exclusive, but I think being a fan is certainly an emotional reaction in a, in a lot of ways. And there's some thought process in it, but to do, you know, what Dylan scholars do, there's definitely, there's a, there's very limited emotional reaction there. It's all, it's all responsive and thoughtful. And so I think that that's how I would reconcile it, that there are things that Aaron, the scholar, definitely is more critical of about Dylan, like his treatment of women, then Aaron, the fan, can say, well, it's situational, you know? <laughs> He's a product of his generation. <laughs> exactly, exactly. We expect that type of misogyny from boomers or, you know, even he's not a boomer. He's, he's a boomer yeah. Yeah, so I'm like, we expect that. He, he was raised in the patriarchy, we, you know. So I can make excuses. Aaron, the fan will make excuses where Aaron, the scholar, will not be uh, as generous to him. Area of critique. But, <laughs> yeah, I think that's what it is. I think it's the level of critique that. Yeah, yeah. that we... now, you know, the reason I ask the question is because, you know, my 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 scholarly background before I came to start studying Bob Dylan, I was a Bob Dylan fan. Mm -hmm. I was, you know, early 18th century British, right? Jonathan Swift, mm -hmm. stuff like that. Um, and 18th century studies is a that's an interesting area in, in, um, in humanities. And um, you know, and there really was this sort of sense that there, there were people who were like had this almost fan approach, but you weren't allowed to really reference that. Okay. Uh, yeah, they get very excited about anything dealing with their their favorite author or whatever. Mm -hmm. But you could never actually address that as they were like a fan. Right. Right. See, and yeah. with Dylan, it's different, I guess, because he's a pop culture figure. He's still alive. He's giving concerts. You buy his albums. You buy his T-shirts. Right. Like a fan. There's, there's a different level of engagement, you know, because you can actually engage with Dylan, you know, if absolutely not one on one, but in the same physical space where he's performing and you're responding to it, where you can't do that with Jonathan Swift. It just doesn't exist in your reality. And so, yeah, there's a different level. Of, of engagement and you wait for something new Jonathan Swift is not producing new material so yeah there's just I can see that plus he's not a creature of popular culture in the same way or any of those authors maybe maybe Hemingway would be a, a bridge but that's also 20th century American yeah but I mean Swift was he had a certain cachet you know really a celebrity um, mm -hmm. in the latter half of his life. He was a celebrity right. in Ireland. Um, so he did have that kind of, there was a pop culture aspect. Right now, there are 18th century scholars who may be listening to this who are like, you know, sharpening the long knives. But, um, but that is there. I, and and I, it did occur to me that, you know, there is a way you can access Jonathan Swift that you can't mm -hmm. drop Dylan very directly. In St. Patrick's Cathedral in Dublin, Mm -hmm. thing that Jonathan Swift has that Bob Dylan does not have, and that is his death mask. Okay. 
So you can go visit Jonathan Swift's death mask. It's not a pretty one. Okay, and we'll say yet, you know, because Dylan, <laughs> we're all going to get there, but, you know, and gratefully we can say yet about Well, we Dylan, don't do death masks anymore. Anyhow, it's kind of creepy. But, I'm um, sure if anyone did a death mask, Bob Dylan did. would do it. Yeah. <laughs> you make sure you had that little mustache going. Absolutely. So if, if let's say there were a dichotomy, though, right? Right. Let's say... Let's say your your bosses at San Jacinto said to you, you know, Aaron, we, we like we like you as a Dylan scholar, but you gotta stop the fandom stuff. I can't really imagine that. I just made that sense. I can't either. Yeah. <laughs> just go with me. <laughs> what would you choose? Um, would you give up your scholarship for the fandom or your fandom for the scholarship? Well, what does it mean giving up my my fandom? Because no. going to a Bob Dylan concert if I'm studying set lists is part of the scholarship. Yes, but you can't cheer. That's just awesome. not accepting my scenario. <laughs> I know, because I mean, it, it kind of, like I said, they're not mutually exclusive. All right, well, I won't cheer, I promise. Um, <laughs> uh, I, think, I think I get fulfillment from both sides of it, but I think I get more fulfillment writing about Bob and talking about Bob with other people like you. And so I would probably if I had to give up the fandom over the scholarship. It's a weird question. I admit uh, it is. It's, a, it's because they're, you can't separate them yeah. that easily. No, you can't. And that's yeah. why I wanted you to talk about it a little bit. So let, let's, let's change the subject a little bit. What, okay. what, else, what are the kind of music do you listen to? Okay. So, yeah. Um, I'm a typical Gen Xer with, you know, grunge music, but I was raised in a very eclectic, musical world there was always music on um my grandfather had speakers throughout the house and so i grew up listening to classical music and going to symphony and going to broadway shows and my mom loved show tunes which is maybe why and she made us clean the house playing show tunes which is maybe why i hate musicals now um <laughs> but my father that's a, that's is a behavioral science experiment right there. Absolutely. <laughs> I know. I want to go get some Windex every time I hear a show tune. Um, no, but we listened to big band and knack and call, like all of the classical songbook was, you know, in part of my life, plus rock and roll. And my mother, I think if she listens to this, she'll hate me for saying this is the only person who, who sided with Garfunkel in the Simon Garfunkel split. Um, <laughs> Always but, for the underdog. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That, that is her to a T. But as any, you know, hip 1970s woman, she had Carol King's tapestry and she had all, you know, the, the appropriate female singer songwriters. And we had, just music everywhere. Plus my father is uh, trained with Buddy Rich. He's a percussionist. And oh. so we had a lot of jazz in our lives. And so if you looked at my, my library, my music library, it would seem really frenetic because <laughs> there's just, it's everywhere. So I, and even to gangster rap and I like, I like anything as long as it's honest and it's, it's well done. You know, mm -hmm. I wouldn't even say well-produced because overproduction can ruin a perfectly good, track okay so yeah i mean i think it's just i listen to literally everything as long as it's good okay Ex except for new country i don't love new country because <laughs> it's never <laughs> good is, your, your, is what you're saying yes yes um, and i'm glad i'm glad people enjoy it you know i'm glad for them if they enjoy it it's just not for me okay and unlike bob dylan i don't like jimmy buffett ah why not 
I don't know. I just, it, I just don't. I've tried a lot. I liked him, I think, in high school, and I think that's where I'll leave him. Mm. I've never developed Steve, a taste myself. Yeah, yeah, with the Steve Miller band. They're all in, they're all in my fun high school years, and maybe <laughs> they're associated. They, I left them behind. So how does all that music relate to your love of Bob Dylan, or does it? I mean, with some of them, you can see a direct line. Being from Jersey, it's prerequisite that I love Springsteen. So, I mean, obviously, that, there's a direct connection. But right, even true. the, yeah, I mean, I think it, In general <laughs> love of Springsteen. they would revoke my Jersey status if I didn't. Right. Um, no, but I think if you think if you consider, you know, the big band and Mac and Cole and the the American Songbook stuff that I listen to, that's clearly, you know. Dylan, Dylan clearly loved that. He's influenced by it. So there's definitely a relation there. But I would say in the same way that The Sun Also Rises changed the way people wrote novels in America, and I would say in modernist, modernist literature, Dylan changed the way people write songs and thought about writing songs. And so anything that comes after that um, owes a debt to Dylan. And so anything you listen to after Dylan I think there's a connection to, but I think also what Dylan taught us was that music can be good and smart and it can mean something. And so, you know, when he says, as we all use the quote, and I've read so many Dylan articles that use the quote that, you know, he thought pop mainstream culture was lame and a big trick that, you know, that's, I think if you, if you tap into that, then the music you listen to also taps into that, that it's not regular pop music. There's some there's some bad pop music I can get into though. So so speaking of the American Songbook, what what do you think about all those those um you know Dylan's American Songbook albums, which everyone refers to as his, his Sinatra albums? Um, yeah, also from New Jersey. Yeah, right. Yeah, the, the best people are. <laughs> well, my wife is so. <laughs> as you know. There you go. <laughs> Can't complain. There you go. All right, so I. I kind of love them. You know, he, I think that for not just the albums, but for what they did to his own register that he learned how he, he practiced or developed, you know, to how to use his voice a little bit better or more he playing those albums or recording those albums. So I think that, you know, I, I like them for what they are and the songs that he does. Um, but I also like how it developed his vocal instrument. Because yes. we, we benefit from that in live show. I mean, in the subsequent recordings, but also in live performances now. Yeah, and I, I think it, it had an effect on the way he constructed his songs for, for Rough and Rowdy Waves as well. Oh, yeah. I'm not a musicologist point. By, any stress, by any stretch, but I, I do, I can just sense that. Um, you know, there's just something about the, the patterns of those songs that are reminiscent. Um, they're evocative of, of the American songbook even when they are, you know, based on perhaps other people's tunes. Right. Which do you think, I mean, I'm, I'm not disagreeing. I need to think about that and let it marinate a little bit more in my brain. You have any, uh, any final thoughts? I don't know. I mean, I think they covered a lot. I'm just eager to see now that we're coming out of the pandemic and he's doing more live shows. I'm wondering if he's trying to, and this is, this would be my thought, you know, for, for whoever's listening to kind of look out for is, is he going to continue to do a primarily rough and rowdy way set list? Um, as we kind of t 
talked about, I'm not sure if you and I talked about it, but we suspect that he's trying to get as many live performances of those songs as he possibly can out there, maybe. Um, or is he going to do something different? We know that this tour is slated to 2024. And so it definitely has an end point. But what happens after? I'm eager to see what happens after that end point. Yeah. That's my my final point. I'm always greedy and I want more. But of course, it'll be 83. I know. 2020. <laughs> I understand. <laughs> yeah, which is extraordinary. He's, he's, he's rather spry, but you can see he gets winded sometimes up there. He does. He does. Um, but that's, you know, and I'm, I'm looking forward to potentially going to see more shows with friends like you and, you know, continuing to do more good work, hopefully, if, if I'm allowed to, if this book does well, to do more good work and read what other Dylan scholars are putting out, like you and Laura and Rebecca Slayman, who's, you know, two generations behind us, mm-hmm. you know, just to see what other people are adding to the conversation and hopefully to be, to continue to be able to. So that's my yeah. final thought. Yeah. And I appreciate you having me on. This was so fun. No, I appreciate you 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 joining the inaugural podcast, the inaugural interview. And uh, you know, the dilettante site is a it's kind of a, I've, told, I've described it as a zine style. I'm going to solicit mm-hmm. contributors um, to so, to put on all sorts of stuff. Um, the only thing that I can't figure out how to accommodate is sculpture, but otherwise, I'm open to pretty much any other genre. That was Court's question. Why not sculpture? And now he thought that you meant you did, he didn't he didn't he thought you meant you didn't want people writing about sculpture <laughs> because the new sculpture just just unveiled in France, which makes me think we need to go back to France. But I know. I want to see that. I want to. I see do that. too. Um, so now that's much clearer. You can't actually put sculpture on the website. So I was like, yeah, I don't know why he doesn't want us to write about sculpture. <laughs> Oh, you can write about sculpture. You just can't put one on the website. <laughs> Understandable. We'll be, uh, we'll be expanding this site as we go along, and uh, you know, doing more interviews. I won't be doing all the all the yakking, as they say. Um, there'll be other people. You can do interviews with people. And... Fantastic. Thank you for listening to the Dylan Tons podcast. Be sure to subscribe to receive the latest Dylan Tons right to your inbox, and don't forget to share on social media.